Welcome to Getting Fishy With It, a podcast about zebrafish, fish, uh, and I guess aquatics and lab animal. Uh, my name's Josh. I'm Christine. And I'm Amber. And we're going to talk about zebrafish today. Uh, Christine, what is, I just was, you know, before we even get into this, I, I sort of, I'm curious what, what you want, what this podcast means to you, right? Like what we want the tone to be, what we, what we like about it or something. I don't know. We, we get into it a little bit. I kind of want to sure. know what our, your expectations are. As you know, part of my job, I spend an awful lot of time just talking to people about zebrafish, whether it's, you know, the folks that are I'm supporting in the research end of things, or just like the other lab animal folks that are working with other lab animals. We can't help but not talk about our model organisms, you know, we're just kind of nerdy like yeah. that. So, and I feel like when I get together with folks like you guys, we end up talking about zebrafish too. So I think this is just a way to kind of have this conversation and chat about zebrafish and other aquatic organisms as well with a bit of a lab animal bent to it and just kind of share that with with other folks just kind of have them join in on the conversation i think we'll probably end up digressing too because i think we're all kind of like aquatics nerds to some extent so we will probably end up being like oh my god sharks or whatever right (laughs) like that's bound to happen yeah (laughs) Yeah. And just to kind of jump on like what Christine was saying, I feel like zebrafish in particular are like lesser known model organisms, like in the field of laboratory animal science. And so it's just good to kind of spread the gospel, I guess, of like zebrafish and kind of show people like what they can do just because like in the field, it's more focused on like rodent models or even like non-human primates and things like that. A hundred percent. Our fish room is right off of the lobby for the main vivarium in the the building that we're in. And so people walk out into the lobby and they see this big sign that says like aquatics facility. Mm. And the number of times where people like see me walking in that door in my scrubs and they're like, can I, can I have a look? Like what's in there? (laughs) You have no idea. And so they'll like, you know, I let them have a peek. And they come in and they can't believe the size of the room and like the scope because they're used to, you know, a lot of them are rodent users, mouse users. They'll come down and they're used to their little cubicle of a room with a handful of, you know, mouse Mm. racks in there. And then they come into our room that has like 70 racks in it. And they're just like, what? How is this (laughs) in this space? So, yeah, I think it's cool to be able to share with folks. So. Yeah, I think no one knows. I think it's like the best kept secret. Although it's getting less secretive, right? I think the thing is, it's like even when I like it's been getting better, right? But what if I go on like Indeed or like LinkedIn or something like that, it would always look for job. It would always, you know, how it has like the little section where it's like, oh, mm-hmm. these are jobs that are similar to your job. And it is like nine times out of ten, it's like swim coach, right? Yeah. Like it's always <laughs> I'm like, no, Some what other technician earth? for something else. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So I think someday that will probably change. But as it stands now, like I think it's still small enough, right? Like there's a there's a graphic that I use in some of my talks that shows like zebrafish getting their due. And mm-hmm. it's just it shows like how they're quickly catching up to the other species, but they're still not there yet. But I think I like the fact that we kind of have this victim mentality in zebrafish where we're like, yeah, you know. <laughs> we also can be like the experts in our, you know, little insular institutions a lot of the time, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of the time when you're running a facility or if you've been in a zebrafish facility for a while, you're kind of like 
yeah, I know things. And maybe it's like the Ron Swanson gif of like, I know more than you when he yes. goes to Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel. Is that how you feel when you go into a pet store? It's like that oh, exact thing. Yeah. Every time I'm, someone's like, what si- is your tag cycled? How many, what size is your tag? And I'm like, I'm just, I try to be stealthy and like, don't want to, but at the same time, like judging all of the setups. You gotta just, you gotta drop stealthy hints that you're very knowledgeable. Just be like, oh well, like usually when I'm with, in a pet store with my wife, I'll drop like eight, like I'll drop a lot of fun facts, and then yeah. like the the pet store person quickly like realizes like, oh okay, I guess he kind of knows what he's doing. Because like the last thing I want is for them to be like, mm, yeah. this is too many fish for that tank. I'm just like, just let me let me do my thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> leave me alone. I just say if I want to put 25 big me Corys in here, let me do it. They'll be happier. <laughs> <laughs> the irony is, uh, as as my boss has, he's used this adage before. He says the shoemaker's kids have no shoes, and and what he means by that is that my t- fish tank at home, I'm like terrible with it. Like I like will let those things go. Like I'll wait till the nitrates are like really high, like the levels oh. are high, and like something. <laughs> I'll wait until a fish is looking like not good before I'm like, all right, it's time to do a water change. Like I'm being lazy. <laughs> I have to like Josh. I gave you shit at Aquaculture America. <laughs> you did. <laughs> And I feel a little bad about it, but at the same time, I don't, where I'm just kind of like, Josh, what was that? Because Josh, in his talk, had a picture of his aquarium, and I saw it, and I was like, oh, what happened? Oh, I got roasted. Christine roasted me. It was so great. Not in front of a bunch of people, though, so it was okay. Oh, no, I deserved it. Because afterwards, like, I thought about it, and I was like, what was I thinking? Like, it was like a sparse, I have a 55-gallon tank. It's big and or it's a good size depending on uh, who you are i guess but yeah it had like one plant it had like a couple lava rocks and like a few fish like it was like real bare bones and i was like i can't believe i had the audacity to put that in my in a presentation (laughs) (laughs) i don't know whatever (laughs) should we move on to talking about yeah organisms let's talk about zebrafish (laughs) yeah i think we should probably talk about maybe for folks who are listening that don't know too much about the lab animal domain kind of let them know what a model organism is i don't know amber if you want to handle chatting about that at all yeah sure and so for those of you that are listening so a model organism is a species that is used as a representation for other organisms. So in this case, you know, if you're studying a neurodegenerative disease or any other type of disease that afflicts humans, like you can use like what we um, just said at the beginning. So you could use like rodents or non-human primates. And in this case, you know, zebrafish can be used for a lot of different things as well. And so we can kind of go into, I guess, like the benefits of like the um, using a zebrafish as like a model organism. And so in this case, like zebrafish, they have a short generation time and they can quickly grow from like larvae fish to adult fish in about like three months. They also have transparent embryos, which are really like probably the coolest like thing about them, in my opinion. Um, Mm. So just being able to see them under the microscope and watch them develop within hours. And then they're also really easy to manipulate genetically. You can go on YouTube, by the way, and just like look up like zebrafish embryo development. And there is like a bunch of videos of just watching it go from a single cell all the way to like a fish it's incredible yeah i actually like i don't know i don't know if i coined this term i don't want to take credit for it when i'm talking to folks about zebrafish especially folks that are in lab animal that maybe know a little bit about like you know colony management of rodents or rats or whatever i the term i say is 
that zebrafish go egg to egg in three months. So from an egg to making more eggs. So that's basically mm. like, I. that's how I, that's what I call it. But speaking of the transparent embryo thing, last Tuesday, we did a career day slash little science demo day for some middle schoolers that the campus that we're on, part of it has been parceled out to put secondary or secondary school and like middle school education. So there's a new middle school and about to be a new high school on the campus. And so they have an agreement with our campus to come and like learn about science. And it's nice because it's like kind of like an underserved community. The campus is kind of in a place where there's not a lot of opportunity for the kids that live in the area. So mm. we had a setup where I got permission from the animal care department to have a setup with zebrafish embryos and microscopes. And so we had 24 hours, 48 hours, and then like four day old embryos larvae. And so the, the kids could look at the fish under the scope at different time points. And so it was pretty cool. We used Casper so you could actually see the blood cells moving through the tissues, right? What's a Casper? <laughs> So Caspers are, <laughs> I I've, I had to explain this so many times to the middle schoolers because they thought the fish were pretty cool looking. They do look like a ghost. <laughs> they do look like a ghost. And sometimes they are very close to being a ghost because they're not very healthy fish. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> very close to giving up the ghost. Yeah, they're, they're, they're always a few days away from that, I feel like. But yeah, so they are completely transparent zebrafish. So they both lack the most pigmentation that zebrafish have. So they have albino, the albino gene, but they also have a gene that removes the iridophores or like the shiny scale tissues that you see mm. in most fish. So you can see right through them. It's two simple recessive traits combined that make Casper fish. So they're pretty cool looking. Because they take away all the reflection in the eyes, like normal fish have the, all those iridophores, the reflection, mm -hmm. the, the cells that can reflect. So like all of a sudden they just have like black holes for eyes. So they definitely yeah. look like a ghost. Like, well, and, and that, that gene <laughs> is the Roy Orbison gene. You know uh -huh. that, right? It's like, I that's just why... know Roy. I don't know what Orbison. Oh, it's, it's, you know who Roy, okay. I am this showing my age here. Do either of you know who Roy Orbison is? I do not. <laughs> I do not also. <laughs> um, okay. This is mine and Christine's relationship, by the way. It's Christine making a reference, me laughing, and her being like, do you know what that is? And me being like, not at all. Not even close. Yeah, I do the same thing. It's okay. <laughs> if you guys can Google Roy Orbison, like just look at an image search of Roy Orbison, you'll know why they're called Roy Orbison fish. So the gene is called Roy, named after Roy Orbison. Are you serious? Yes, 100%. They oh look like they're wearing God. shades and Roy Orbison wore shades and he was a musician from like my parents era, not to like make people <laughs> who are older than me feel bad, but yeah, Roy or that's why they're called Roy's. Pretty woman walking down the street, pretty woman, the kind I like to meet, pretty woman. So this guy, did he know? Oh, he died like he died the year I was born, 88. Oh my God. Um <laughs> wait, does this guy know? Were they no. named when he was alive? No, no, no. I don't think so. Oh, okay. Some PI who was probably in his 70s now thought that it was funny to name them Roy's after Roy Orbison because they probably were a fan of that Roy Orbison's music. Oh, so it was an homage to him. It wasn't like making so. fun of him. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't think it was making fun of him. It's just like his iconic look. He always wore dark shades all the time. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell everyone this fact. Really? I'm gonna just tell this. I'm gonna tell people this fact all the time. This is incredible. I had no idea. <laughs> well, fun fact. There you go. That's the Roy gene. That uh, so it's Roy, the Roy gene, and the NACRA gene together. Those mutations 
that make a Casper fish that makes a transparent fish. So fun fact, you guys learned something today. That's cool. These are the hard hitting facts you're going to learn on getting fishy with it. You're not going to get them anywhere else, people. (laughs) (laughs) Josh, did you want to talk at all about the kind of the historical context of like why zebrafish are even a thing in research? Oh, yeah, sure. I don't know how far back you want me to go, but I did do some research on this because I'm a nerd. And also I have to start, I'm giving lectures now about zebrafish and biomedical research. I give all this history. But I think if I remember correctly, uh, zebrafish were discovered like, well, discovered by, you know, I guess white people (laughs) in 1822. This one guy named Francis Hamilton, who was a surgeon who I guess had some free time to go spelunking around Ganges River in India. These guys are from India and and some surrounding countries there. Uh, And so the Ganges River has a bunch of tributaries and the zebrafish are endemic to there. Uh, And so he discovered them and thought they were cool and wrote about them in his book, which is called like the account of fishes in the river Ganges and its branches, which I think I got that title correct. And yeah, he brought, he basically discovered them. And I don't know that he brought them into the hobby, but at least in the early 1900s when they started to become more popular. And I think for all the reasons kind of that we said, besides the transparent embryos, but like, you know, the short generation time and just because they were easy to to spawn in captivity, I think they became a mainstay in the hobby. From the 1900s up until now, they're still, you can find them pretty much in every pet store, right? They're just, they're in wholesalers, they're in any Petco or anything that you go to there, you're going to find them. That's that's kind of wonderful, I guess, right? <laughs> they're kind of everywhere. People, even hobbyists know what they are, even if they don't sure. know about research. I the I don't know if it was the case for you, Josh, because and I don't know, Amber, if you ever worked in the pet trade, but for me... It was weird to start calling them zebrafish when I just called yes. them zebra danios. Me and too. To this day, when I'm trying to explain to people, I'm like, you know, zebra danios. They're like, oh, okay. Because yes. zebrafish to me are like a weird group of like saltwater fish that maybe some Yeah, people- no, I get them confused, I guess, with like the lionfish. Because like, yeah. or like when you look them up initially on Google, like it doesn't necessarily give you the actual zebrafish, like the ones we're currently like talking about. It'll give you like lionfish or some other type of fish that has stripes on yeah. them. Or if mm. you're trying to make a graphic and you're telling uh, an AI... <laughs> To use a zebrafish, it's like does not know. It's just like does not compute. I don't understand. I think it's gotten better though now. Like if I just do a quick cursory like Google image search, stuff that comes up when I search zebrafish, it's pretty much zebrafish now. You get yeah, the odd better. like bad stock photo that has like a giant Danio in among the zebrafish for some <laughs> reason. That always How dare was they? a stickler for me. I <laughs> Yeah. I, uh, another thing that I always bring up, cause I, I just think it's funny is like, cause I was so fish obsessed as a kid. Like I was very fish obsessed because my uncle's owned a pet store and I just would like spend just countless hours there. And I would like obsessed to the point where I would start like cataloging. I would like imagine setups in my mind and I would like think about like, okay, how much does like it cost for a bag of gravel, a light? And I would like write down, I would catalog everything and like write down prices. And then I would put like the total at the bottom. So I have like a little like notebook with all these like stupid setups from like, I looked back, <laughs> I think it was like 2002, right? I was like little and- Making me feel so old. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I always do this. But uh, yeah, I ended up finding 
a zebra Danio setup that I had with like, you know, cause back in the day, I think they were like, Oh, you could just put marbles on the bottom and the, you know, they externally fertilize. Mm-hmm. Right. So they will just scatter their eggs everywhere and they have no parental instincts whatsoever. So they'll just immediately eat their eggs. I was like watching a video of that recently showing someone like, Oh, here's a video of fish spawning. And it was like the exact thing. Like they're just, they're just the females. They'll just spawn and they'll get a couple of the eggs. They'll eat them a couple of them before they fall. <laughs> kind of fun. sad. Yeah, they just don't know. Yeah. Uh, so to get back to uh, oh, the history, okay. So I'll talk a little bit about uh, how they came into research. I guess is is that a, does that sound all right? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds okay. great. Yeah. Okay. So you know, sort of the godfather of zebrafish research and the, and the guy who we all sort of credit with with zebrafish in biomedical research is this guy named George Streisinger, who I don't believe is alive anymore. No, okay. he unfortunately died in a like scuba diving accident, I believe. Oh, no. oh really? Yeah. Oh, Suddenly. that's terrible. So, it, but like the zebrafish almost, I think, didn't become a thing because his lab fractured at that point. Oh um, goodness. Yeah, it, it's I don't I don't know I don't want to speak out of turn because I don't know all the details, but I just remember reading that at some point. Okay, yeah, I'll give yeah. you I'll give you what I know, but that's very interesting. I want to do more research on that. Um, you know, so anyway, he he's he realized the capability that zebrafish had because of some of the things we talked about with their usefulness as a model. And so I think his his one of his sort of landmark papers that got published in Nature, which is like a high, very high impact journal, right? Which is for the lay person, you you if you're a scientist, you always want your research papers to get into like the best journals, right? You want them to get into the best pop publication so that like mm-hmm. essentially that it gives you clout, right? And that at the end of the day, the more clout you have, the more funding you can get for research. So it's kind of a cycle. And so one of these experiments that he got published into nature was one where he was able to clone zebrafish, right? And the way he was able to do this was, uh, you know, tip, typically when you have like a normal mating, let's say you have, you know, you have a sperm and your egg and, and, you know, for humans, any, most animal that do regular sexual uh, fertilization or whatever, they are going to contribute half the DNA from the male, half the DNA from the female. And then that's going to go together. And you're going to have one single cell that has basically double the DNA, which is how much you need to develop and grow into a functioning organism. And so what he did instead for these guys is he was able to irradiate, uh, I guess using like some sort of irradiation technique. So some kind of ray to eradicate the DNA inside of a sperm, a zebrafish sperm. And then he used that to still fertilize an egg. So when you do that, at that point, the egg, the embryo only has half the DNA that needs to develop and it won't develop into a viable embryo. Like it won't become a fish, right? But if you halt cell development by basically increasing the temperature by quite a high, I don't know exactly how high they get the temperature, but they increase the temperature. It's called heat shocking. You can keep that cell from dividing, but the DNA will duplicate, right? So as typical, you know, mitosis is occurring, typical cell division is occurring, DNA is going to be duplicating. And in this situation, you keep that cell from dividing. So the DNA duplicates, and now it has two copies of the DNA from the mother only. So that's an exact replica of the mother fish, right? Because it has two copies. And Mm so once he was able to achieve that, he had an exact clone, which is very useful to look at mutations, right? Because if you have a parent or everyone has two copies of a gene, you can have one gene that compensates for the lack of, you know, functionality in the other gene. That's why it's so nice to have two chromosomes of each, right? But in this situation, 
he was able to make it so it was a clone. And so that way it's very useful if you have a disease model or something. That was way too wordy, but that's the idea. <laughs> it sounds very complicated. Uh, I know. I maybe didn't need to get that deep no, into it. But it whatever. I think it's interesting because I, I actually didn't know how that process worked. So that's great. Yeah, yeah, I did a lot of studying on that. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. Skip to the next time point if you don't want to hear it. <laughs> you got to go back and be like, all right, guys, we're going to get really deep now. So if you want to not be bored. Talking about diploid supremacy. <laughs> but yeah, one thing I was wondering if we could like go over is when we talk about like genetic manipulation and things like that, and we've already talked about like different strains. And so wild type strains and then also transgenic strains for our listeners. I guess we can go right into it. But yeah, so like for wild type fish, I guess for those of you that aren't familiar, zebrafish, I don't really know like the historical background, I guess, of like wild type ABs, but that's oh, usually what we generally... Oh, you should go into Christina. <laughs> so, you know, like there's a lot Is this of... named after someone else who's no, dead? it's literally <laughs> like, you know, we, we, we like to poo-poo for a lot of reasons, pet trade fish in research, right? There's a mm -hmm. lot of problematic reasons why we don't use pet trade fish, but AB fish are the cross of pet store stock A and pet store stock B. <laughs> that oh, is wow. why okay. they are called ABs. I'm not even wow. joking. So, I mean, like when you look at the origin of like rodents, they were pet trade rodents. If you they can even call it a pet there, trade back then, right? right? Like they came from somewhere, but you know, they, they bring all of that like health baggage with them. But yeah, ABs, I always call ABs, and this is maybe like too much of a deep cut for folks who aren't familiar with like lab animal stuff, but ABs are the C57 blacks of the zebrafish world. They're mm -hmm. pretty ubiquitous wild types. C57 blacks are a particular a type generic. of wild type strain. Yeah. And they have tons of health problems and maybe are not the best model organism, like the back, best background to use, you know? Yeah, there are that's maybe really interesting more robust i don't know if like you guys have worked with rodents a little bit i think mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. those kind of ubiquitous like black rodents that you see the mice that you see that aren't great breeders they don't produce any milk they have eye problems they're kind of like ab's to me ab's have depending on where you get them from and that's the problem right we call these things ab's and who knows where they actually came from mm. um, unless you're going back to the stock reference like people do with rodents but uh, i find that ab's have like health problems when they're like legit ab's from a reference source so they don't tend to live as long you know whereas you hmm. have these like facility crossed ab's but yeah anyway that's a tangent in a soapbox i'm not going to talk about right now but ab's are literally just pet trade fish many generations removed yeah. And that's really interesting because, you know, wild type ABs are often used as the control for a lot of these like research projects, just because again, they don't have, there's no genetic manipulation with them. Like you said, they're literally from the pet store. And so a lot of people use them as sort of like the baseline, of any research that they're doing. Absolutely. There's a few different wild type strains that people use, and it depends on what their work is, what facility they're at, you know, what background they tend to have available to them. There are some limitations for folks working in certain countries for importing zebrafish because of like local and like national health regulations. So ABs are kind of really, really ubiquitous, but you've got like wicks, jabinigans, I think are another one. There's those long fin leopards that people use as wild types. We use those. Yeah, we have some too. Yeah. And then there's the yeah, jabinigans. I don't know if you guys can think of any others. 
off the top of your head, wild types. We had a group of wild types at my old facility that like survived some sort of, this is before my time, but they survived some sort of cataclysmic facility problem. And they were pet trade fish, but they got some sort of Harry Potter name uh, after the fact. And so that was the line that that institution used in a lot of the labs. So it was like, great. We don't know what these are. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, we currently have like the um, AB, ABTL, but we also have these wild type PC and I don't know exactly what they are. Um, I just know like the coloring on them is a little bit different, like a little Mm. bit more pinkish. And Mm. so, but they're just wild type PC and I'm like, I have no idea what that means. (laughs) I wonder if anyone at your facility knows or if everyone has moved on. I know that is such a common thing in like multi-user facilities, right? So it's just there. Wow. (laughs) So one other thing I did want to mention about, you know, both the historical context of how we use zebrafish, but also just like kind of transitioning into the biology and like how we use these guys. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that makes zebrafish like pretty different from a lot of other model organisms, and this is a vast generalization, but a lot of the work that a lot of people do with zebrafish is with their embryos. So, you know, mm. there are folks, and I'm sure maybe you guys have examples. I don't in my facility. Everyone does just embryological work at my facility, which makes things easier for me. But I would say much, much more so than you would see with, say, a rodent facility, a mouse facility. Like the animals, the adults that we have on our racks that are housed in our facility are broodstock. That is what they're there for. Their whole goal is to feed, hang out with, you know, conspecifics, like the other species, other animals in the same species of sex, the same sex or opposite sex, and just make eggs for us. And so those eggs are what people use. So that can be a challenge too, because when people are writing their protocols for animal use, trying to make the IACUC, your institutional animal use and care committee, understand that like, yeah, I'm going to use like 50,000 animals, but they're embryos. So um, whereas with <laughs> rodents, we end up, you know, a lot of the stuff that people do with rodents is adults. Mm. Is that the same for you, Amber? Yeah, I would say that we don't focus so much on like the embryos, but more of like five day old fish. Sure. Okay. And so like right after, because it usually takes like three days for a zebrafish larvae to hatch. And right Mm -hmm. after it gets to that 5D period, because I guess what we do in our lab is we focus more on like the movement of the fish. So we do electrophysiology. And so basically administering different stimuli to the fish to see how they move um, when it comes to like certain obstacles and things like that. And so we like to look at them when their eyes are fully developed. So they expect like the eyes would be fully developed by day five. But I know like other people will also look at like embryos, like depending on like if they're doing genetic manipulations too. And so if they're working on a specific transgenic line, which in this case, it's there's something that is like genetically manipulated within the zebrafish. They want to see like how that fish basically will move or like see if there's like any other things that they're looking at. Mm. So there's a bunch of labs uh, at my institute, but uh, two of them specifically do some work with adults uh, because Mm. they have this crazy regenerative capability, right? Um, And so they, I, I mean, just I guess for everyone's edification, you know, zebrafish have this ability to undergo a severe amount of damage and still be okay, right? They can suffer physical, like a laceration or something like that, and be able to heal very quickly, right? So for instance, they can take a damage to their heart. They can take a, you can essentially snip off a small portion of the heart 
And they're able to quickly clot that up and regenerate all those tissues to the point where like it's indistinguishable from the old heart, right? Or mm-hmm. indistinguishable from the heart previous to the injury. And it's it's insane. Like humans cannot do that stuff, right? Like if we get like take an injury to our heart or like we have a heart attack, like there's a very likely we just need a new heart, right? We're on the transplant list and and that's it. Uh, right. But for these guys, because they're a prey species, and this is probably like an evolutionary tool that they've developed, they're able to just regenerate very quickly. So this is true of the heart. This is true of a lot of different organs. They can be somewhat, they could just be injured and basically completely recover from that. And in maybe two months time, the heart resections are two months time, they can fully regenerate their heart. So yeah, I obviously, no matter what animal it is, whether it's Wolverine from like our Marvel comics or something else. Like I think if you do too much damage, it's probably a no-go. It probably won't recover, but uh, it's kind of amazing how they're able to regrow things. Absolutely. I mean, like to genotype these fish, a really common method is is to clip off some of the fin, one of the fins, right? And that grows back. And that's kind of an analog to, you know, human limbs. You could not take off a little, little bit of a limb and have it grow back on a person, so or a mammal in general, right? So, mm. yeah, we had at my old facility, which was a straight up biology facility, like there was not really any biomedical research happening. People did a lot more work with the adult fish, so they did behavior mm. work with the adult fish and some injury model stuff as well, and a lot more of that kind of stuff. Some toxicity work as well, where they were looking at like very, very vanishing doses of like tox uh, environmental toxicants and how it impacted even epigenetically. So like over multiple generations of fish. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was interesting as well. For the most part. What folks are doing at my facility is just looking at embryological stuff. So for us, a big part of it is looking at, you know, things like how the muscles develop, how the heart develops, how that can go wrong. We have folks that are doing like craniofacial work. So things like cleft palate Mm. and, you know, just how the jaw and how the teeth develop. And, you know, even though zebrafish embryos are externally fertilized and they develop outside of the adult fish, the, you know, several steps of you know the embryo embryological development is very similar to a mammal any other vertebrate right and so that's why people are using them yeah so we end up doing a lot of craniofacial stuff that can present some challenges when we're trying to grow these fish uh, as well so we have to grow a pets or whatever we end up doing a lot of that kind of stuff we actually have folks that are also doing even behavior stuff with the larvae just where we're looking at things like analogs to depression and ADHD in humans with zebrafish and so you know people think that they're you know a quote-unquote simple organism but how they interact with their environment is very telling for us you know even as technicians looking at adult fish you can tell kind of how the fish is feeling just health-wise and how stressed they are by just looking at how they interact with their environment how they interact with the tank that they're living in how they interact with their other fish that are in the tank Um, and so you know we have folks that have imaging technology that can track the larvae, you know, they're very tiny and they can look at how they utilize space based on certain stimuli, all that kind of stuff. So it's pretty cool. Like there's a lot of stuff that folks can do with, with zebrafish larvae. So it's kind of interesting. And I want to say like their whole genome is sequenced as well. And Mm -hmm. that's like important too, because if you look at a human, I mean, we're composed of millions of neurons Mm -hmm. and things like that, that we are still trying to figure out to this day and probably will take a very long time to even get to that point. But for 
you know, smaller organisms such as zebrafish where, or even like a worm where their whole entire genome is sequenced, it's very easy to just pick out, you know, one gene that you want to manipulate and see like, you know, behaviorally what happens or whatnot. And so I think that's also like a benefit of using zebrafish as well. I mean, it's not going to matter. Chad GPT is going to get us all anyway, right? So, uh... <laughs> Don't say that so only much. for the next couple more years. Yeah, we can't put this. Uh, we can't put this anywhere. Chat GPT. Has anyone asked Chat GPT what they think about uh, a zebrafish? What their thoughts are? No, I haven't asked. I have. we, oh. At some point, we need to ask them. On the, the topic of the zebrafish genome, not to like get you guys back on topic. It's fine. Oh, no, it's fine. I love that chance. It's all good. <laughs> but like, what's the, I know we talk a lot when we're talking about why we use lab animals in general. We talk about genetic similarities, you know, and like what genes are conserved, et cetera. Do you guys have off the top of your head, just not to put you in, the spot but like what's the you know how similar are zebrafish to us or to other vertebrates you know what kind of gene like conservation are we looking at when we come to like genetic disorders all that kind of stuff do you guys know those numbers just off the top of your head so i i only know that 70 percent of uh, human genes have a zebrafish zebrafish ortholog or vice versa so there's about 70 percent that match so you could find those genes in a human you could find the same one in a fish so that's useful but that's about all i know specifically yeah i think that's the number that we use the other thing i've heard before too is that like there's a pretty significant number of genetic disorders that humans and some other vertebrates get that are also just that can occur in zebrafish like those same genes are conserved I want to say it's something like 80%, but someone I'm sure would send an angry email and correct me on that. But I feel like that's a number that I've <laughs> been told before. But yeah, so that's that's another thing they're really useful for like genetic work because, you know, number one, a lot of genes are conserved. There's a lot of similarities between us. I mean, heck, there's a lot of similarities between us and a cauliflower. Like 40% <laughs> of our genes are conserved. It's really that high? Oh, yeah, I think so. We're like 40% cauliflower, something like that. So. Um, so now when I see someone and their little kids, I'm like, wow, you, your kid's growing up like a cauliflower stalk or like, I don't know, something like that. <laughs> I, think, I think any plant, I think they're probably all pretty similar. It probably means, yeah, when you say they're growing like weeds, it really actually yeah. means like really <laughs> there's some similarities there. So what exactly does that make you, Mr. Piccolo? You survive mostly on water. Does that make you a slug or a plant? But yeah, so in, when, speaking of gen, uh, genetic manipulation and stuff of these guys, I, this is something I don't have a lot of expertise in. Like I usually joke with people and this is very reductive, but I usually tell people, I just feed the fish. Don't ask me any questions about it. <laughs> yeah, you already said that. <laughs> this isn't part of my program. I'm a doctor, not a doorstop. <laughs> but do you guys have experience with, you know, transgenesis, like making transgenic animals? And like, how does that work in say a zebrafish versus working with a mouse or a rat? Like, how is it that, you know, transgenesis and zebrafish and like making mutants, et cetera, is so much more desirable and maybe even easier in zebrafish than it is in mammals? Yeah. So I've worked um, with mice before and I feel like breeding mice is a little bit trickier because like you mentioned, if you're trying to establish like a transgenic line, when I was working with mice, I was doing a lot of like dementia uh, related studies. Mm. Um, and so just making a mouse to model dementia was like really difficult. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I think it may be because like with mice, again, I don't think like the genome is like entirely sequenced. And so there's a lot of unknown when like pairing 
I don't know. Correct me if that's wrong, or I don't know. Maybe there's something we have to that look that just... up. I think okay. there's yeah. we're, we've been sequencing a lot of genomes these days because the technology is so fast. So yeah, it's possible. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it wasn't like that before, right? Um, mm-hmm. But sorry, could we continue? No, you're fine. I just feel like there's something that makes it like difficult, even if you're pairing like a male and female together. There's just like so many unknowns to where like you don't know if you're going to end up exactly with what you like the Mendelian kind of genetics type of sure. way. So like you're not sure if you're going to end up with like that recessive trait or whatever. Um, whereas like with zebrafish, I don't know if we've like covered this yet, but they are sexually dimorphic. Um, mm. And so that makes it a little bit easier to pair like a male and a female. Uh, males generally have like a torpedo shape and they're also more brightly colored than females and so i've been doing like a lot of breeding recently um with the zebrafish and i just feel like it's a lot easier to just because of like the way they also breed as well with like the releasing of the eggs and then the sperm as well i feel like it's a lot easier to put two different especially transgenic lines even though like that also comes with like its cons as well too. So you may have low survival rate and things like that as well. But yeah, if anyone wants to speak more on that. Yeah, I definitely can. Um, so so I, I got a chance um, a while back to when I was more like in the labs doing a little bit more uh, transgenesis to, to make a few, quite a few transgenic lines. And, and there, there are some definite advantages. I mean, number one, like, although they have a fast reproductive cycle, it's not nearly as fast as mice, right? Like mice can basically, there's no egg to egg in mice, but I don't no. know, mouse to mouse. Yeah. Uh, it's like 21 to 28 days. Like it's like very yeah. fast, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's basically within a span of a month, you can go from having a baby mouse to like this mouse is ready to have more babies. But the, but the way zebrafish catch up or the way they they sort of make up for that is that N, right? The number of animals they can produce in a week or in a month, right? It's so many animals. And yeah. so when you're producing a transgenic, let's say, right? So the way you produce a transgenic is you essentially have some some number of construct, like maybe like a DNA construct or RNA construct that you're putting into a fish. You're also putting in something called RNA transposase, which is essentially coding for an enzyme, which like basically like moves moves around pieces of the genome. That's, I think that's like the best way to explain it. And so it's just, you're sort of hoping by random chance, but like kind of educated, educated chance mm-hmm. by the way that you flank these constructs, the way that you flank these little fragments of DNA that you put in there, that, that, that the correct DNA will end up in the, the genome inside the DNA of the zebrafish that's developing. So once you get that, you know, th- those fish grow up and then you have to sort through all these embryos, right? And like, some of them have what you want. Some of them don't, like you never really know, but you can do it on this large scale where you can't really do that in mice so easily. And then once you do this on a large scale, you sometimes will breed those fish. And then you're looking at the next generation to see how many of those fish have are carrying that gene, right? Because the gene, when you inject it into a, an embryo, it's not going to get into every, it's not always going to get into every cell. It's not going to be inserted mm-hmm. the same way. It's going to cause, it's going to create this thing called a mosaic. So some cells express, some cells don't. So you might be able to see this, you know, because they develop outside the body, you might be able to see this in a fluorescent way or something like that, but you're able to screen for those. And then the next generation is where you're hoping like, oh, maybe this made it into the germ line. So what that means is just, it's making it into the the gametes of the fish, the reproductive uh, tissue of the fish, and hopefully it passes on to the next generation and then if you get into the next generation that's where you're hoping like okay you have a fish that has this gene in every single cell and expressing the correct way so that's the idea i guess so i have a question because i'm ignorant about these things so you are 
the transgenesis, like generating a transgenic line in a zebrafish is done. And one of the reasons we like to do it is because it's out the, all it is, all that is done with just like a regular microscope and an injector on embryos outside of an animal, right? Mm-hmm. Like you are not, but with rodents, do you have to like, how do you generate transgenic animals with rodents? Are you messing with that embryo and re-implanting it? I'm not, That's the I, thing. I think that must be how they have to do it. I know they do re-implantation of, of right. mouse embryos, but like, I'm not hundred percent sure it how they do it. Like it seems it's way more complicated, right? It seems very involved. And the I don't number know. of animals is like, you know, like, as you mentioned, so the term I like, I like to use is fecundity or productivity. When we're talking about like zebrafish, they have like their fecundity, the number of animals they produce is really, really high. And it can be, you know, one female every week can make a hundred to a couple mm-hmm. hundred eggs, you know, but with mice, you know, it's every 21 days. If you're throwing yeah. a male in on that day 21, when she's giving birth, mm. but that's like what, five to 12 babies. If they all survive, if they don't get eaten, if they're not C57 black parents and you have to like try to foster them or something. So that's the challenge, right? Is And I just wanted to chime in. I did. I just checked on the gene uh, genome sequencing. Mm-hmm. So mice were sequenced in 2002. Oh, but wow. Do you, okay. you want to guess when zebrafish were sequenced? But the zebrafish win, it's 2001. It was 2001. Yeah, and 2002 for mice. So, well, okay, that was a Google search. It says 2000. Okay, okay. Yeah, I agree that it's so much harder. I feel like in mice, just because, like, again, you end up with, like, a small, smaller litter. Yeah. Um, and so you may have like a max of like 10. And then I think back to my genotyping days. Oh my gosh, I had to genotype so many mice because mm. you can only do that, you know, after the 21 days and mm-hmm. the amount of tail snips. So I know this sounds bad, everybody, like for people that are not familiar with lab animal science, but usually you have to take like a DNA sample um, and kind of like genotype them to see whether or not they're, you know, just wild types. So like we said, like the basic control or if they're like a transgenic line and you may end up with like zero that are like transgenic and from that litter. Um, And so I just feel like just being able to establish um, a transgenic line is so much harder in Mm. mammals. Yeah, I think just thinking about the what you have to do to go through it, I'm pretty sure that it's not being done regularly, like in labs and institutes. And so I think people are just using whatever lines that they can order, right, or Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. like that. It has to be what they're doing. I think that's a big part of it, right? There, there's probably a, a much more significant cost associated with transgenesis in mice and rats or mm. just like mammals in general, just because you're having to rely on a resource center, you know, like oh, various yeah, companies true. to do that. And you have to pay like potentially big money for mm. these animals. Um, and I mean, the same thing can happen in zebrafish sometimes. We, I definitely have had folks import animals into our quarantine that were generated at a a center somewhere because they weren't able to do the whatever manipulation they needed to do but Mm. the one thing that you know really opens up genetic work for a lot of labs that may not have a ton of resources zebrafish you know you can do that work with Mm -hmm. a very inexpensive you know dissecting microscope and you know back in the day like when i was cleaning out our facility when we were renovating I found, you know, a bike bump that people use to like 
you know, push air in to do their injections, you know, like a foot pedal bike pump that people would Mm -hmm. use, or they would, you know, just blow with their mouths basically to push the air in, you know, that before there was, you know, the higher pressure injectors that people use to to push the the genetic material into the embryo. So yeah, it's kind of wild. Like the setup is so inexpensive or can be so inexpensive that like Lots of labs can just do it, you know, with approval from their institutional animal use care committee. But it's it's there's a much lower entry level cost, and like even just the the expertise needed is is you know you can learn it a lot easier. And there's lots of ways for folks to learn from their colleagues on how to do that. So yeah, really and like the use of fluorescent markers as well is like a big benefit too. And so GFP, so like green fluorescent protein. So if you do have like a fluorescent microscope as well, you can literally just look under the microscope and you will see like, you know, certain parts of the zebrafish like light up. And so depending on like what you're looking at, obviously, so it could be like the heart or it could be like specific neurons that you're looking at motor neurons, maybe, but you can't do that with a mice. Like I wish I could just put a mice under a fluorescent microscope. And if it glows green, I know it's transgenic. (laughs) So we actually have a kind of cool little setup at our facility where even if you don't have a, a fluorescent scope, we have special glasses and special oh, lights awesome. that you can shine in the tanks. And That's so cool. if the fish are, are, are like tagged a certain way. So uh, this one particular lab, they set it up so that the fish's eyes will fluoresce a certain color if they're a certain genotype. Mm. So all of that is kind of tied together. And so they can look at the tank with just this fluorescent light and just they're they're funny. They look like the seniors blue blocker goggles that, you know, sunglasses that people wear. They look like when they're they put them on, it looks like they're going to look like Roy. What's his name? Roy Orson. <laughs> <laughs> These are more of those wraparound shades. It's just Roy's walking around your facility. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so we and so that's like a really quick way to, to do it with adults, too. Right. So mm-hmm. um, it's a little bit of security as well in case your fish get mixed up and they all look the same you can fluoresce them anyway sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but i I just think that's a cool little i think relatively inexpensive thing that folks have set up for checking out their embryos or their adult fish very cool i feel like we could like totally do deep dives into the genetic stuff too i mean maybe that's a little bit too boring but it's like so interesting there's a lot of interesting stuff there yeah (laughs) so do we want to like recap a little bit about like you know why you know that we've talked about a bunch of zebrafish related stuff like why they are such a popular organism you know we have kind of like you know the whole high fecundity thing so ability to produce a lot of embryos very quickly um and they're externally fertilized or there are other things that we want to talk about that make them kind of like a better not a better but an, a good alternative better, model. Better than every other model. <laughs> We're the best. Be careful. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the other reasons why, you know, we we like to use them in in research? I mean, I think that that's a pretty good recap, right? So like they they re, they reproduce on a really high level. Um it's awesome. Uh, they have this amazing capability for for us to uh, uh, sort of mess with the gene genes and the genome, right? For for inducing of mutations and incorporating transgenes, and that's all useful for uh, biomedical research, right? So we can we can a lot of times mimic a human disease in a in an animal model and in a zebrafish model. It's pretty easy to do. Uh, even at the lab level, they're mm-hmm. easy enough to maintain, right? Um, the, and the air embryos are transparent, which is a huge, 
huge boon. And the fact that they that they develop outside the body uh, just makes it so easy for imaging, for understanding what's going on at the, on the developmental level. So those are all, I think that's a decent enough recap to explain like why zebrafish are such a useful model organism. Yeah, 100%. I have to echo on the easy maintain thing. We didn't really talk about like husbandry end of things, but you know, zebrafish or zebradanios, they are pretty hardy fish. They've been in the pet trade for thousands of generations, tens of thousands of generations. Mm. And we've kind of selected them for animals that are pretty resilient to a wide variety of water parameters, water temperatures, you know, um, and actually to, to piggyback a little bit on what Amber said about the sexual dimorphism of these guys. I'm pretty sure that the ones in the quote unquote pet trade or in the lab animal are comically over-selected for sexual dimorphism. So over mm. all of these generations of us just eyeballing these fish and like picking out males and females, mm. we have artificially selected for like comically overstated secondary sexual characteristics on these fish. And mm. so I am aware of a couple labs that like have imported wild zebrafish, you know, just go out and net for them or they'll have like folks collect for them. And the fish are way harder to sex because they do not have the same like very, very distinct differences in their body shape and coloration and all that kind of stuff, which is kind of interesting. If we ever talk about like betta fish, that'll be like, it's crazy. The difference between the wild types and what's absolutely it's like, it's like wild dogs versus like shih tzus now. Right. Like it's so far. Absolutely. And I feel like I've heard too, that like quote unquote wild zebra fish don't really know how to chat with the domesticated zebra fish. Like I feel like maybe they, I mean, sex determination has changed. Right. So that's one big thing that's changed for us. And that's a challenge. If we, I don't know if we want to talk at all about the challenges of working with these guys, but like one we challenge. Could, yeah, we could do it next time, I think, at sure. some point. But sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say one of the challenges is that like how sex is determined in zebrafish is very complicated. It's not mm-hmm. as simple as, you know, a couple different sex chromosomes that get mm-hmm. mixed in various ways. It there are, I think, in fish, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but there are sex chromosomes in fish, but there's something broke along the way with zebrafish where sex determination is more complicated than just mixing gametes together and hoping for the best. Mm. Um, I think there's, you know, things with temperature, but also stocking density at certain time points, right? Lines can tend to throw like ABs may tend to throw more males in some facilities and in other facilities throw more females. And there's who knows how many other little minutia that we don't think about that determine that can impact that, right? So, but that I think is different from wild zebrafish. Wild zebrafish sex determination, I think we know the genetic basis of it. I think hmm. so. That's an interesting one. We have to do, yeah, I did not know that. So I mean, I know how how convoluted it is in the, you know, in in captivity. Uh sure. that's it's it's not so simple. Yeah, <laughs> but certainly I didn't realize there was such a big difference. Do you guys have any thoughts about, you know, with your own experience working with fish, with zebrafish, what is kind of on the horizon as far as, you know, what are we going to be working with in the future? What are things that people are looking at doing with zebrafish that maybe they don't do now that we could potentially do in the future? That's a good question. I don't know. So so a different, you're saying like a different research 
like paradigm. I think a thing that I think about a lot, and this is something I think is becoming more common, is doing things like imaging and live zebrafish, things like that. Yeah. Oh. Like imaging technology and like, you know, people that are working really hard to try to develop ways that we can do imaging. Because I think another challenge with zebrafish is they're so small, right? These are, you know, a couple inches long at the most. Um, Mm -hmm. So even though their organs are the same as ours for the most part, they're very tiny. So trying to get good imaging done of adult fish, for example, I know people have talked about doing like CT and PET scanning and zebrafish, and I think some folks are doing it. I don't know if you guys have anybody doing that stuff at your institutions. No, I mean, yeah, there's a decent amount of imaging going on in like larva, not specifically at my institution, but sort of like institution wide, I think it happens a lot. Um, And so the only way that they've kind of been able to hold them still for that is embedding them in low boiling point agros, right? Mm -hmm. So they're able Mm -hmm. to just kind of like squish them down in there. Uh, But it's not really the best. I'm sure there are more natural ways to do it. And that's probably like a wave of the future, right? Like imagine if you could find a way to have a microscope objective, like following a fish around. (laughs) I don't know if that's like, I think it's probably not possible. Or even just refining anesthetics, right? So that you can have like chemical immobilization of these guys without having to like make them distressed in like a fluid Mm -hmm. that doesn't make any sense to them. So yeah. Um, And I think there are some facilities that have been looking at like longer term anesthesia for these guys and being able to monitor them. Cause that's another thing that we can't, we can't Mm -hmm. do super well is, you know, if we're hooking up, I used to do imaging with rats and mice. And so they'd be in a, a CT or a PET scanner for, hours while we're imaging their kidneys or their heart or whatever. So you have them immobilized by having them under anesthesia, but you've got them hooked up to monitoring equipment so you can monitor how deep or lo- or like light they are anesthetics wise. That's hard to do in fish, right? So I do spend a lot of time training folks on like how to tell how deep zebrafish are under anesthesia, mm-hmm. but it, it sometimes gets falls on deaf ears a little bit. I, I try not to be too vet techie about it, but uh, it can be a bit of a challenge, but I think that's, that's something like refining how we anesthetize these guys and provide like pain control for them within the context of still being able to do science. But yeah, did you guys have any other thoughts on that kind of stuff? Yeah, I was thinking, so like, I think zebrafish would be really beneficial for environmental toxins. And so especially recently with like the train derailments and then all those chemicals mm-hmm. on those trains um, and just kind of like flooding the entire area. I think like they're really actually probably the perfect like model organism for that. And just seeing like how those environmental toxins are going to affect zebrafish. And just because zebrafish share a lot of like genes with humans um just seeing like okay like you know if like a human were to come into contact with these toxins how would they be affected and especially if those cases that's going to be like kind of like a long-term like chronic Mm -hmm. illness um or Mm -hmm. like symptoms that they're going those people in those areas are going to experience and with zebrafish you can see that in a shorter amount of time Absolutely. And you could do like this was done a little bit at my old facility, but you could do because the generation time is relatively short, you could do epigenetics there too, right? So you yeah. could potentially expose larvae or adults and you can breed those animals when they're ready to breed and see how it impacts development of future generations, you know. So definitely. definitely. That's like a whole it's a whole nother topic, but it, it is, I mean, the thr- high throughput capability of zebrafish and for tox research is is really useful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like institutes and, and pharma, pharma companies are doing that, right? Like they are 
you can you could do it so easily, right? Because they could just go into little tiny wells and you could just put them all like with whatever the toxin is. And I know that sounds like kind of terrible, but at the same time, it's it's sort of a necessary evil to some extent, right? Because things like this, like what would happen in Ohio or whatever, right? Like humans are just going to get exposed to that stuff and then we have no idea what to do. And so this gives us a little bit of a lead time on like maybe mm-hmm. understanding the chronic uh, illnesses that can mm-hmm. come about by that exposure or whatever. So I think it is sort of an important thing. To yeah. Look and at. if you think about the alternatives too, when we do currently do tox testing, what organisms are used and if mm-hmm. we can do similar work with, with embryos in large numbers, rather than say, I don't know, birds, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. 50 testing, et cetera, with birds. So that would be great. The other thing, speaking of high throughput, and I think this is a topic that we probably should try to find someone who can speak on it that I'm not saying you guys don't have the expertise. I just know I don't <laughs> on uh, things like personalized medicine. I feel Chat like GPT does. And, <laughs> yeah, maybe. I'm, I'm kidding. Hello, regular humans. I am also a human and I want to speak to you about personalized medicine. <laughs> but yeah, so I think personalized medicine and like, you know, genotyping people to determine, you know, what kind of cancer therapies work best. And I think mm. superfish are a part of that. I think that's a, a big growing area of uh, research where, you know, you can use zebrafish embryos to determine, you know, the best course of therapy for a cancer to like target for that individual person's genome. So, but again, I don't know anything about that other than the cool things that you hear from like talking heads at like various research institutions. So, but I think that might be an interesting thing to delve into. I don't know if you guys know anything about that stuff. Uh, yeah, I've been, I've been learning. I learned a little bit about it uh, when I was doing my master's about personalized medicine, because yeah, I mean, I think some cancer treatments are starting to give you an idea of what our capabilities are, right. To just be able to biopsy a tumor and be like, oh, this is the sort of treatment that specifically will work for you. But uh, you know, I think that that down the line this is going to become like a more and more of a real thing the only downside to it is the cost right because whenever Mm -hmm. you're doing personalized medicine you're doing you're catering you're not like drug development companies like the thing that's so useful for them is when they can get a blockbuster drug right when they can just be like wow we we found penicillin on this orange and like now we can just make it and sell it to like en masse right Mm -hmm. but for personalized medicine specific so i don't know if that uh, costs will be borne out by insurance companies. It'll be covered. I don't really know the future of it. It'll be interesting, but yeah. it is shown to be very effective, right? It's kind of the same where like, you know, it's hard to get investment into things like rare diseases. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, especially like rare childhood diseases where like, you know, it's something that unfortunately someone who develops that disease won't live past a, a young age. We had um, somebody doing work on some rare childhood disorders at my old job, which was like one of the only biomedical things that we were doing there. It was kind of a weird little offshoot of our biology facility, but we had, um, it was kind of the coolest thing that happened when I was there as far as like, even though, you know, children are not my favorite thing in the world, (laughs) but we had a kid come in that had epilepsy disorder that was like really rare and not super well understood. But I think fish had been generated with the same mutations that she Mm. had Mm -hmm. and uh, a therapy had been developed to help her at least like live a a normal ish life and be able to like go to school and all that kind of stuff. And so the coolest thing was like having this kid come to the facility Mm. to look at her fish under the scope and like see them, which was kind of cool. 
but then it was so cool. like, it was a big like media circus but it was really cool and it, it worked wow. it was interesting but it's like one of these things where like one in like 10 million or 20 million kids have this disorder and they they found a way to like treat it and what causes it which was kind of cool and that was zebrafish that did that so i think we may see more of that kind of stuff because even though the costs of things like personalized medicine are potentially higher the costs of trying to develop say like rare disease therapies with something like rodents or primates are even more expensive. Yeah. So zebrafish are at least a stepping stone where you can do like really high throughput to try to find therapies, et cetera, for things that people might not want to spend the resources on just because of economics and, you know, et cetera, as unfortunate as that is, as much as we'd like to cure everyone. So, yeah. And also kind of like their view. I mean, we can also talk about this later, but like people's view on laboratory animal sciences as a field. Mm -hmm. And so they probably aren't okay with like, you know, using dogs or like non-human primates. And so I think that's why zebrafish are kind of like, you know, a good alternative to that. Um, Even like, you know, maybe um, fruit flies or like worms, um, sort of <laughs> like they're kind of in that group to where it's just like, yeah, like, you know, using animals would probably be like, you know, the best option. But of course, we can't do that as of right now. And so, you know, people would probably rather go with zebrafish than like with, you know, some higher order animal, I guess is right. what they call them. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's definitely like I have actually done tours where people ask me if the fish are animals. And it's like, yeah, they definitely <laughs> are. Uh, they oh, are After three days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In Canada, five days, so... <laughs> oh man, I, yeah. If you do a lot of, vo- like, any volunteering at schools, like, I've done a couple, <laughs> and man, the questions sometimes we get are hilarious. Like, they're not necessarily about fish specifically, right? Sure. Like, we did a rodent one, and they were like, I heard rats don't have bones. And I was like, what? <laughs> hang on (laughs) i don't have any bones (laughs) yeah i i think i did have someone ask me once if a rabbit was a baby kangaroo why are you the way that you are wow that's (laughs) that's impressive Uh, yeah yeah it's definitely they're not so (laughs) but uh, yeah so uh, i would have to say like you know i've worked in lab animals since like 2009 and i've worked with a lot of different species and I don't think I've ever had anybody because I'm very happy to tell people about the work that I do, even though I've worked at many institutions that are like, you cannot tell people what you do because mm. and that's a whole other topic we can get into is like the stigma about the work that we do. Right. Mm-hmm. And like the toll it takes on us, et cetera. But um, I've never, I don't think I've ever told someone that I worked with fish in research and have them be like, oh, animal. <laughs> yes, that's my exact experience. But yeah, like I don't... The, the tiniest, fuzziest, ugliest mammal, and they're going to care. But a fish, <laughs> they're not even animals. To this. <laughs> <laughs> that's mean. I like fish. Yeah, me <laughs> yeah, too. We're I'm on the side biased. of loving fish. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not a mammal person. No offense to the people that are here right now. Uh, I'm not the not the my, mammals are not my favorite. <laughs> so hopefully hopefully you got schooled or at least you learned a little something for getting fishy with it i'm josh i'm christine i'm amber and we'll see you next time 